You're listening to PetLifeRadio.com. Hello, kitties, and welcome to my world. I would come over and say hello to you, but it's just as easy for you to come to me. Yes, yes, come in. You've come to the right place. This is where you'll learn everything there is to know about your furry feline friends. I'm talking about cats. Yes, I know. We are positively perfect pets. What do you mean I have attitude? Why, of course I do. I'm a cat. It's called Catitude. As I was saying, this show is all about cats. Cats and... Um, oh, yes, uh, cats. So let me introduce you to my accomplice, I mean assistant and host of Catitude, Tom Doc. Okay, Tom, tell them how wonderful we cats are. It's okay, you have my permission. Welcome to the Catitude channel on Pet Life Radio. I am your host, Tom Doc, and of course, this is the place where you can find out all that you need to know about your cat. And we've been having a great time over the last couple months talking about different breeds of cats. And I've got three more breeds to talk about today that are all tied together by a unique physical characteristic. We're going to be talking today about the American bobtail cat, the Japanese bobtail cat, and the Manx cats. Now, as you've probably already figured out, all of these cats are unique in the fact that they do not have full-length tails. And we'll talk about why these breeds were developed, how they were developed. Two of them are actually a little newer developments in cat breeding, and one of them is a little bit more old. Uh, the Manx is an older breed of cat, actually probably been around for at least two or three hundred years. But we'll talk about what makes these cats different from each other, why they are separate, distinct breeds, as well as uh, what they have in similarity to each other as well. Very unique looking cats, and I'll give you lots of uh, different pictures to go look at on the CFA website so you can get an idea of what these cats look like. But they're just really kind of um, neat looking cats, and I've never had one of these cats, so I can't speak to their personalities in a first-hand method, but certainly I will talk with you about what breeders and other people have said from the CFA website, from wikipedia.org, as well as some of the other websites that I use to do my research. A little bit later on, after we take our second break this half hour, we will again go to the news desk at veterinarynewsnetwork.com. We've got some interesting stuff to bring up to you about what they're doing with feline genetics right now. There's a geneticist who's tracing the ancestry of the domestic cat, and we'll talk about that story. But I really want to talk with you guys a little bit about fleas. We're getting to really into a heavy flea season, and everybody's been getting hit with a lot of rain across the United States. And so going to be a pretty bad flea season and we'll talk about different products that you can use and uh, the good the bad and the ugly of all of those so certainly if you have any questions at all if you hear something that uh, confused you or you just need to get a reiteration of one of the websites that i've talked about please email me at tom at petliferadio.com again tom at petliferadio.com all right, so let's get right into our trivia question here, and then we'll take a short break to hear from our sponsors, and then come back and start talking about these cats. Now, we're going to be talking about the Manx cat a little bit later in this program today. And the Manx cat, although very unique and people really are surprised when they see this cat, has figured very importantly in the well-being of an ape, actually. Coco the ape, which was one of the first apes to learn the American Sign Language for the deaf, had Manx kittens for 
pets, or actually she treated them just like little baby gorillas. She actually picked a little gray Manx out of a litter of abandoned kittens, and she, the gorilla, Coco, named the kitten by herself. I want to know, this was back in 1984, I want to know, do you know what the name of that kitten was? Because she named it by herself. So we'll have the answer to that trivia question, as well as a lot of great information about these bobtail and no-tailed cats coming up right after we hear from our sponsors. Ooh, do I hear a can being opened? I believe I smell tuna. Catitude will return after these messages. That should give me enough time to investigate what's going on in the kitchen. Don't have a hissy fit. We'll be right back. I love cleaning the litter box, said no one ever. Luckily, there's World's Best Cat Litter, the litter that promises less mess with less litter. Only World's Best Cat Litter uses the concentrated power of corn to quickly trap odors in tight clumps. And quick clumping means you never have to chisel or scrape the box. Less cleanup with less wasted litter? That's a litter bit amazing. Save $2 on World's Best Cat Litter. Visit www.saveonworldsbest.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com How dare they open a can of tuna and make a sandwich out of it? I can see why some of my celebrity pals prefer lasagna. Well, anyway, I did manage to grab myself the canary while I was in there. Quiet, bird. We're going to hear the rest of my show, Catitude. If you behave, I may not eat you. Until later. Okay, Tom, you may continue. And we are back to the Catitude Channel here on Pet Life Radio. Again, this is Tom Doc, your feline host, and I hope that uh, you're having fun learning about cats, and we're going to learn about three new breeds today. But first, let's talk about that trivia question. I asked you about Coco, who was the famous gorilla that learned American Sign Language. Um, Dr. Francine Patterson actually helped teach her this. This Dr. Patterson actually was asked by Coco for a cat. And so they found a litter of abandoned kittens. Coco selected this gray male Manx cat from this litter, and she actually named him, and the name of this kitten was All Ball, which I thought was kind of interesting for a gorilla to name a little kitten All Ball. So I don't know if he's round or pudgy, but as we'll talk about, Manx cats have a very round appearance. So kind of an interesting choice for her to name this. Unfortunately, this was back in the summer of 1984, um, Allball escaped from the cage and was hit and killed by a car. But um, after Allball had died, unfortunately, Coco wanted some new kittens. And in fact, she communicated through the sign language that she was sad and that she was crying. And so this brought up a whole debate about whether non-human species can have these emotions that we have. So in 1985, she was allowed to pick out two new kittens to be her companions. And again, she chose Manxes, just like Allball, and they were named Lipstick and Smokey. So a little bit of multi-species trivia there today. And let's start talking about our tailless cats or our short-tailed cats. And the first one that we're going to talk about is actually the American bobtail. Now, this is a relatively new breed. It's actually pretty uncommon still to find these bobtails out and around, even on the show circuit. This breed was first developed back in the 1960s or first showed up in the late 1960s. And the original cross was a short-haired brown tabby male whose name happened to be Yodi. 
and he was crossed with a female seal point Siamese mix. And out of this mix came these stubby tailed cats. Instead of a normal cat tail being somewhere around 10, 12 inches long, these cats tails were only somewhere between one and four inches in length, five at most. And so obviously this caused quite a stir. Any new mutation in any cat breed causes quite a stir. And so people tried to continue and perpetuate this mutation. Unfortunately, due to the fact that they were trying so hard to get a specific looking cat, um, specifically what they wanted was a short-tailed, pointed, long-haired cat that had white mittens and a white face blaze. Well, we know how difficult it can be to breed some of these things in and get, to get them to breed true. And so what started happening is we had some real excessive inbreeding in these original bloodlines of the cats back in the late 60s and early 70s. And a lot of breeders started kind of getting away from that, started outcrossing to some domestic cats. And now you can find American bobtails in all colors, all categories, and all divisions. And really what they're wanting to do is get a cat with somewhat of a wild appearance kind of a i don't know just wake up and your hair's kind of crazy type of appearance um, not like the aussie cats that look like wild cats but these guys just have that kind of ruffled appearance now these were recognized by the cfa for championship status in february of 2000 so not quite 10 years ago actually only about eight years ago now and even though they look like japanese bobtails as far as that shortened tail they are not related to the japanese bobtail at all and interestingly enough no two american bobtail cats will have tails that are exactly alike and again they'll range between one and four inches in length and this is due to a dominant gene for the bobtail so it's similar to the manx cat who also has dominant genes for the no tail but it only creates this shortened tail the japanese bobtails we'll talk about shortly is um, due to a recessive gene now these american bobtails can be um, like i said a shaggy coated cat but they can be short-haired or long-haired and there are breed standards for both of them they are a medium to large cat and they are told to me to be a very very athletic cat but they're also very adaptable which is kind of a a neat thing because they have been used by psychotherapists in some of their treatment programs. They have found that these American bobtails are very well behaved, very sensitive to people in distress, and so that works real well in their therapy. We've also seen truck drivers seem to like these guys a lot more than some of the other more quote high-strung cats. I think they're talking about my favorite Siamese, but um, certainly these guys tend to be very, very good travelers. Other people have said that their American bobtails are reminiscent of golden retrievers, that they're very dog-like in the way that they act and uh, follow their owners around. Also, you've got to be careful because I guess they can get out of about any situation. They're very Houdini-like, so keeping them in a cage or even a locked room is somewhat of a difficult thing to do. So that's one of the newer breeds of cats, um, and you'll find these American bobtails in a lot of different colors. I think they can have just about any color with the exception of the pointed cats, but they are a very slow maturing breed. They take about two to three years to reach their full adult look. Again, they're noted kind of for their wild look, but they've got a wonderful personality and they adapt to busy environments just as easily as they do to quiet environments all right so let's move on and talk about their relatives the japanese bobtail and some of you have seen these little 
porcelain statues of the beckoning cat that comes from Japan. It's the little cat with his paw up there, or maybe it's called a waving cat statue. Well, old legend goes that there was an aristocrat in Japan, a feudal lord, who was taking shelter under a big tree during a thunderstorm near a church-like temple. And there was a cat pacing back in front of the temple. Maybe it was a monastery. And as the nobleman watched this cat, he watched it and the cat turned towards him and beckoned and waved him into the monastery. Well, right after he got there, he turned around and of course, it was a thunderstorm. He shouldn't have been under the tree in the first place, but the tree was struck by lightning and knocked over and he would have certainly been killed had he stayed there. Um, but it was because of this cat that he was taken into the monastery. And the legend has it that it was one of the Japanese bobtail cats. Now, these Japanese bobtail cats have been known for quite a while, several centuries in Japan. Um, there's records in the 1700s of a short-tailed cat running around Japan. And another legend is that the Japanese cats, who probably came from mainland Asia, from Korea, um, about a thousand years ago, the cats that came to Japan, a cat was sleeping too close to a fire one day. The cat's tail caught on fire, and the cat ran through the town, caught all the buildings on fire. And that's a very, very harsh thing in Japan. As you know, the, the culture of Japan is very worried about fire because of the building materials that they have used in the past. And so the emperor at the time decreed that cats couldn't have tails anymore, and so the, all the cat's tails were cut off therefore you've got the Japanese bobtail. Now we know that that is a legend. Um, we now know that this bobtail is due to a recessive gene, not a dominant gene like the American bobtail. So these cats are not related to the Manx or the American bobtail as far as that goes. Of course, they are related from their domestic cat status. But these guys were brought over um, in the 1960s to the United States by a lady who is now deceased by the name of Elizabeth Foray. And actually, they're very quickly accepted by the Cat Fanciers Association. And you can see some wonderful pictures. They've got kind of a foreign body type. But if you want to go to the CFA.org website and look up the Japanese bobtail breed profile, you'll see some very nice pictures, um, especially there's a long-haired one. Um, let's see if I can say this name right. Kurisumasu Kisiniko of Katsuma. And this is a female bobtail. And she's a tricolor, which is one of the most popular colors that you're going to find these Japanese bobtails in. They can be shown in any color. You can have, you know, a solid black, a solid white, any color, but the most popular is what they call the Miki color, and that is where you've got tri-colors going on, kind of a calico type thing, a calico van. It's a mostly white cat. Looking at Curry Sumasu right here on the CFA.org website, she's got kind of a white blaze and a black patch over one eye and um, the orange calico across her tail and across one of her ears. Very striking cat, and that's um, what most people are looking for, and that's the most popular coloration in the Japanese bobtail breed. Now, you cannot have Siamese markings, and you cannot have any of the Abyssinian agouti markings that we talked about a few weeks ago. Like I said, these can be shown in both long-haired and short-haired, and because this is a recessive gene, you never get tailless cats or cats with full tails. These guys always have a tail that is somewhere around four to five inches long. They are very good family pets, and a lot of breeders talk about their sing-songy type voice. They are good travelers, like their cousins, the American bobtails. They adapt very quickly to different situations. 
people who say that the cats can sing say that their voices are capable of nearly a whole scale of tones so you know a whole octave type of thing there so that would be kind of interesting to listen to i understand that they're very good with dogs and other animals and they're especially good with children so this might be something for you to take a look at if you're looking for a new unique type of cat go to the cfa.org website and look up the japanese bobtails there's probably five or six different pictures on the breed profile page of various colors and they're all just They've got this foreign body type, just very, very striking cats without having that tail there. And also you can find pictures of the American bobtail underneath their breed profile. And they too have that kind of a wild look. They don't have a foreign body type, but they have more of a wild look to them. Okay, so I don't know if I've confused you enough or not now, but we've talked about the American bobtails and we've talked about the Japanese bobtails. Let's end this segment by talking about the Manx cat. And uh, I tell you, these guys are just so unique in their characteristics. If you looked at them from the front and couldn't see the back end of the cat, you would swear that this would be an exotic short hair or a short-haired Persian. They just have that roundness to them, that big round face with the big jowls and almost a massive type of body. These guys were originally found on the Isle of Man, which is an island between Ireland and England, and we know that they've been around there for 200 years, um, probably much, much longer than that. And the legends, again, we talked about the legends of the Japanese bobtail. The legends of how the Manx lost his tail, there were two that really struck me. One is that the Irish invaders of England would steal the tails of the cats for their helmet plumes, which I thought was kind of interesting. So mother cats then started biting off the tails of their babies so that the tails wouldn't be stolen. But the more fun one that I really got a kick out of is that the Manx cat was messing around and didn't get on the ark in time. And when Noah slammed the door to start the ark going, that he slammed the door on the Manx cat's tail and that's how he lost his tail. So I kind of liked that one. That was um, a very, very fun little legend about these guys. Now, the Manx cat, again, like the American bobtail, has a dominant gene that causes this tailless. Now, you can actually, in litters of Manx kittens, which are very small, by the way, usually only two or three kittens, in litters of Manx kittens, you can have cats with no tails, cats with partial tails, which are called stumpies, and cats with full tails. And for a long period of time, they really thought that you shouldn't breed a tailless cat to a tailless cat because it caused a lethal condition which would kill the kittens and if they were born if they actually made it through the pregnancy and they were born they died very very early of spina bifida we now know that this dominant gene doesn't penetrate completely in other words it doesn't always show up and so some breeders are able to breed tailless cats to tailless cats because of this and and maintain the, the Manx look and the Manx tailless. But in most cases, you're going to find some tailed cats in the Manx cat's background in their pedigree. And again, go into the cfa.org website. If you look at the profile of the Manx, there's a real good looking brown mackerel tabby and white uh, Mason's Dixon. Uh, that was best to breed short hair. And then there's a long-haired version of the Manx too, known as the Kimrick or Kumrick, depending on what part of Ireland you come from, actually what part of Wales you come from. Uh, Kumrick comes from the word for Welsh, which is Kumru. And these guys are long-haired Manxes. And of course, we know as from 
previous discussions that the long-haired gene is just a simple recessive gene and so it shows up in many many cat populations but there's a very nice picture of the best of breed of the coumaric and that is um mini us details northern exposure it's a black and white male now these guys both the manxes and the coumarics can come in a whole variety of colors i see black and whites reds and whites tabbies as i look through the site but again the whole thing that looking at them is that they almost look like rabbits they have this kind of round appearance and it's because they've got this massive head these short little legs in the front but they're back legs are actually longer and so they do get kind of a rabbit-like appearance and some people have actually called this breed a cabot because they thought it was a rabbit and a cat bred together and we know that that's not possible but certainly uh, you can see where people before we knew about genetics would think that this is the case now talking about their health we talked about some of these kittens being born of spina bifida there is a concern uh, it's called manx syndrome and basically the end of the spine doesn't grow properly because this cat is a very short cat and you'll get some malformation of the spinal segments most of these cats are going to show up very early by the time they're two months old so any reputable breeder is going to be holding their cats till they're about four months old anyway and so you're not going to see these cats coming onto the market very often they can survive one cat actually got to the age of five um, he had very very little bowel control and no bladder control whatsoever so these cats are very difficult to live with when they have this condition but again a reputable breeder is going to show you the pedigree and show you the pro the concerns and show you how they've worked to get around this particular hereditary condition these guys are fun cats they're very playful one breeder actually mentioned that they look like little drag cars that all of a sudden they'll as we've all seen our cats do this they'll go from a sitting position into a sprint around the house but these guys just have the look of a, a sprint car racing down the um, racing down the oval or something like that all right, so those are our three tailless or shortened tailed cats that we've been talking about. We need to take a break because we're about 20 minutes into our program right now and hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to talk with you guys a little bit about what this feline geneticist is doing and then also give you some helpful flea tips to get you through the summer. So hang on. We'll be right back to the Catitude channel after these messages. Do I hear a can being opened? I believe I smell tuna. Catitude will return after these messages. That should give me enough time to investigate what's going on in the kitchen. Don't have a hissy fit. We'll be right back. Molly, here's your dinner. <coughs> Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a six inch tray for large bowls and a four inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. 
How dare they open a can of tuna and make a sandwich out of it? I can see why some of my celebrity pals prefer lasagna. Well, anyway, I did manage to grab myself the canary while I was in there. Quiet, bird. We're going to hear the rest of my show, Catitude. If you behave, I may not eat you. Until later. Mm. Okay, Tom, you may continue. And we are back to the Catitude channel. Again, this is Tom. And we just got done talking about our shortened tail cats, the American bobtails, the Japanese bobtails, and the Manx cats on Pet Life Radio here. And I wanted to point out some cat news for you. As I go throughout the week and I'm doing research for the Veterinary News Network, I come across a lot of very interesting stories. And actually, I found this one. And it's the, a feline geneticist is tracing the origin of the cat. And, of course, we've all thought about cats being from Asia and Africa and things like that. Well, this geneticist is actually trying to pinpoint exactly where they came from. And they did ask her a few questions. Her name is Dr. Leslie Lyons, and she is exploring the origins and the domestication of our house cat. And she is at the University of California, the Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. She says that cats domesticated themselves instead of us domesticating them like we domesticated the dog and so basically the way that she explains that is that cats adapted themselves to us other than the other way around in other words we went out found the wolf puppies we trained them to work with us and that worked very well for a pack mentality type of animal but certainly we know that our cats don't always run in packs and so saying that they adapted themselves to us rather than the other way around I think is a very perfect way of understanding the origins of how our cats got to be our friends. Now, some feline experts say that there's about 600 million cats across the six continents that people live on. Of course, people don't live on Antarctica. And there's archaeological and genetic evidence that shows that the cats first originated there in the Fertile Crescent, where civilization first came about there in Mesopotamia, uh, what is now the Middle East at this point in time. And they took a lot of genetic samples of cats across that way, and they found that, yes, these are where most of our cats have come from. Again, going back probably to that African wildcat, that small African wildcat that we've talked about before. And, of course, they spread all throughout Asia, spread all throughout Europe. Really didn't get any of these small cats here in North America until the pilgrims and the settlers started coming over from England and Europe in the 17th century. So we went a long time without having cats over here. But now we've got them here, and we certainly do love them very much. But if you want to read a little bit more about this, you can go to usatoday.com and search for origin of the cat. I think you'll find that it's actually going to be a National Geographic special at some point in time coming up. Interesting picture they chose. They've got a Bambino cat, which is something that I've not heard of before. I'm going to have to actually go research this. Looks like a Sphinx cat um, on there. If you've never seen a Sphinx before, of course, you know that they don't have hair and very, very interesting looking cat. I think also you'll note that a Sphinx was on the one of the episodes of Friends. Rachel actually went out and bought a sphinx at one point in time all right let me give you guys some quick tips to get you through this summer now i'm hoping that a lot of you keep your cats indoors or keep them uh, even if you do let them go outdoors for short periods of time that you use some good flea control on them 
Fleas are so prevalent here in the United States, um, especially along our southern, uh, the southeastern states, the Gulf states, Texas. There's a lot of fleas in that area. And up here in the Midwest where I'm at, of course, now we're getting in the summertime, we're going to get a lot more fleas. And we've actually expanded our flea season to include everything from March almost all the way to December. Most veterinary experts now, the uh, Companion Animal Parasite Council and other leading experts say that you should keep your dogs and cats on flea preventative all year round, really no matter where you live in the United States. And that's just simply because these guys are so hardy, the fleas are, they love to live in our house. We set almost a perfect condition for them in our house with the temperatures that we like and the humidity that we like so that they reproduce very, very rapidly. Now, there's a lot of people out there that may not want to treat their fleas because they're worried about, oh, these chemicals are too harsh or my cat doesn't get fleas. And so there's a lot of flea myths out there. And like I just said, a lot of people believe that fleas aren't a problem in the winter months, but fleas can do a real good job of overwintering normally right in our house. And then they're in areas that we don't often think about. They're going to be underneath some of the furniture, behind the couch, places where the cat might go but maybe we don't think about cleaning quite as often as we should. And so flea larvae and flea eggs, flea cocoons are all in these areas. They don't get picked up quite as often, and so we get a little flea infestation in our house. You can also find fleas a lot of times outside in warmer micro environments. If you've got a dryer that vents outside, which you should, um, if you have a dryer, it should vent outside you're going to possibly find fleas right outside in the mulch or the soil or the bushes right outside in that area because it's a much warmer microenvironment. A good frost will help to thin these flea populations, but a lot of times they can come bouncing back. If you've dealt with fleas before, you know that fleas can reproduce very quickly. Their life cycle can be completed in as quickly as 12 days. That's an adult laying eggs and those eggs growing up to be new adults that are sucking the blood of your cats and your dogs and possibly even you. That can happen in just 12 days. 25 female fleas within a one-month period of time, we're talking 30 days here, can turn into a population of more than 250,000 fleas. And that's something that's really could cause a lot of problem for you, your kids, and your pets. Now, you may be worried about chemicals. And certainly in the past, there have been a lot of flea products that have caused problems, especially for our cats. Let me give you one word to look for, permethrin. Never ever use a permethrin product on your cat. Permethrin, unfortunately, and cats don't get along. They don't have the right enzymes to break it down. It builds up in their system, and you'll see a lot of neurological signs. And believe me, having spent 15 years in the veterinary field and working in emergency clinics, I certainly saw cats who would come in when well-meaning owners trying to save a little bit of money would put the dog's flea control medicine on the cat. Talk with your veterinarian before you apply any flea control medication. The veterinarians have probably the best products out there, the safest products out there. Certainly there are some good products that are, you can find over the counter, but a lot of times you're going to pick these up in places where the people don't have any training whatsoever. They don't, they've not been trained in what flea products are, how deadly they can be. And so you're going to find some of these products. And again, if there is permethrin in the product, please don't use it on your cat. Go to your veterinarian, pick up some Advantage, pick up some Frontline, 
there's some newer products out now. Um, Eli Lilly has just come out with a product that's oral called Comfortis. Uh, that's supposed to work very well. And I believe that Fort Dodge has a product called Promeris, which is a newer generation a chemical that the fleas have not been exposed to before, which is something that uh, people are concerned about. Are fleas becoming resistant to these newer generation of products? We do know that about 33% of fleas are actually resistant to the permethrin product that I just mentioned. Now, permethrin is a great insecticide. The military uses it a lot of times to help keep mosquitoes away from the soldiers. But Fleas are becoming resistant to that, and they did a study and found that about a third of them here, a third of the fleas here in the United States are actually resistant to permethrin. And so now there's concerns that some of the, quote, newer products like Advantage and Frontline that have been on the market for more than 10 years now, that flea resistance is occurring with that as well. And certainly that can happen. We can select for fleas that are less susceptible to these products. Now, it hasn't happened in a big way yet. I just got a report out of Florida that there is a strain of flea out of Florida that shows a lessened susceptibility to the frontline product. So we're going to have to, I'll keep an eye on that and we'll see where that goes. But certainly talk with your veterinarian. The most important thing is if you are going to use one of these products, make sure everybody in the household gets treated. Treat your dogs, treat all your cats, even if they don't go outside, because the fleas aren't picky. If a flea comes inside, they're going to find whoever they can, dog or cat, to feed on. And if you've left somebody unprotected, then you're going to get a flea infestation and everybody is going to be hurt. Certainly, Advantage and Frontline and uh, Promeris, these newer products, they're much safer than the older generation of products. They're not related to the nerve gases like the organophosphates are. They don't tend to hurt cats like the permethrins do, and the pyrethrins even can have a little bit of problem with cats. Certainly, they're safe to us as well. The way that they act, they act on certain receptors that the insects have, and we don't have those receptors, and so therefore, we're not going to be harmed by this. Some people might choose to go to the internet or go to a farm and feed store or maybe even a grocery store, buy over-counter products, trying to save some money. Again, be careful doing that, please, because there's a lot of products out there that should not be used on your cats. And if you're thinking that you want to go with a natural flea control method like uh, brewer's yeast and garlic or putting cedar chips down or lavender oil on your cat, again, remember that a lot of these products can be very toxic to your cat. And even if they're not toxic, they may have no benefit whatsoever. A lot of people believe in brewer's yeast and garlic, and I'm not going to sit here and say that these people are wrong, but I think a lot of times people who are using the more natural products don't have a flea infestation to be concerned about in the first place. And so it's kind of like, is the brewer's yeast and garlic keeping the fleas away or were they never there in the first place? Again, talk with your veterinarian. They are the best source of information to find out what kind of products you should use on your cat. And again, you may not have a situation where you need to use flea control products if your cat's indoors all the time and you control the situation, but you can bring fleas in. If you've got dogs, other animals in the household that are going outside, they can certainly bring fleas in. So let's protect our little feline buddies and certainly get them on some flea control medication. 
If you have any questions about any of this information that I've shared with you, I would love to answer those for you. Email me at tom at petliferadio.com. If it's more of a medical question, we'll pull in my friend, Dr. Bernadine Cruz from the Pet Doctor channel right here on Pet Life Radio. We certainly um, want to make sure that we have a veterinarian's opinion before we talk about anything health-related with our cats. And since I'm not a veterinarian, I want to make sure that I get you the best advice possible. But we would love to hear from you, want to hear your story ideas, your show ideas, and if there's any breed that we've not talked about so far, you can ask me how soon that breed's coming up. You might just juggle the schedule just a little bit and see how we can do to help you out or what we can do to help you out. Well, again, it's been very fun. I hope that you've learned a lot today, not only about the different breeds of cats that we have, but also how to keep your cats safe from those pesky parasites that the warmer weather brings. Stay safe during all the flooding and the storms out there, and I hope that I will see you again right here on the Catitude Channel at Pet Life Radio. Thanks for listening. Want to know what cats like to eat for breakfast? Mice Krispies, of course. Learn everything there is to know about cats on Catitude with your host, Tom Dock. Each week, we'll spotlight a cool cat breed, give up-to-date advice on cat health, and check out spiffy new cat products. So curl up on the couch every week for a perfectly enjoyable time on Catitude. Every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.